welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the fourth edition of our ISDS podcast series. My name is Susie Savage, and I'm a partner in the International Arbitration Team based in Reed Smith's London office. I'm delighted, as ever, to be joined once again by my colleague, Patrick Beale, an international arbitration partner also based in the London office. Hi, Patrick. Hello, Susie. It's a pleasure to be back doing this podcast with you. It's always interesting to check in and take stock of what's been happening over the last six months. It certainly is. And as usual, there's a lot to talk about. Let's start with the Energy Charter Treaty. As we discussed last time, reforms to the ECT intended to modernise it and make it more compatible with climate goals and was not adopted at the meeting of the ECT conference in November as planned. That's right. Many countries don't believe that the modernisation goes far enough and that the updated treaty remains inconsistent with the objectives of the Paris Climate Agreement. For this reason, in March, France, Poland and Germany formally gave notice of their withdrawal, which will take effect in December, subject to a 20-year sunset clause, on which more a bit later. Spain, the Netherlands, Slovenia, Belgium and Austria are still contemplating doing so, and Denmark has recently joined that list. So just on that 20-year sunset clause, couldn't withdrawal at this stage be counterproductive? You raise a very good point, Susie. The sunset clause in the existing treaty provides that protection for investments made prior to withdrawal continues for 20 years after a country withdraws. So this means that withdrawing from the ECT might have the paradoxical effect of extending the protection for fossil fuels available to investors compared to the period of 10 years under which protection for fossil fuel investments will be phased out under the modernisation proposals. So can the withdrawing parties do anything about this? To address this issue, uh, the withdrawing parties have suggested they conclude an agreement between themselves that renders the sunset clause inoperative. However, the Energy Charter Secretariat, in a letter to the European Parliament sent on the 13th of February, questioned the effectiveness of such an agreement. According to the Secretariat, any agreement to disapply the sunset provisions could only be entered into by contracting parties to the ECT. So it wouldn't apply to states that withdraw before the entry into force of such an agreement. Then the assumption has to be that such an agreement is going to be challenged by investors, isn't it? I'm sure it is. And for all these reasons, the ECT Secretariat has proposed that withdrawal from the ECT be separated from the adoption of the modernised version of the treaty. So what does that mean for the future of the ECT then, Patrick? Well, the vote on whether or not to adopt the modernised treaty was delayed from November until the end of April this year, but this was also postponed, and as matters stand, no new date for the vote has been fixed. And is there an alternative for investors who find that the ECT route is closed to them? Well, there is. Investors can explore whether a relevant bilateral investment treaty exists, offering similar protections to the ECT, or if the investor's home state and the host state are party to the European Convention on Human Rights, 
they may be able to invoke the protection of property provisions in Article 1 of Protocol 1 of that convention. And in fact, a group of UCOS shareholders successfully brought a claim against Russia before it withdrew from the convention under the ECHR and were awarded almost $2 billion in compensation. That's really interesting. And we'll obviously keep developments relating to the ECT under close review. On a related note, a US court has refused to enforce an ECT award against Spain, finding that under EU law, the state lacked the legal capacity to extend an offer to arbitrate an intra-EU investment dispute. And in March, the US District Court for the District of Columbia dismissed a petition by Blasket Renewable Investments to enforce a 26.5 million euro UNCITRAL award against Spain. Blasket had been assigned the rights to the award by the original Dutch claimants. Uh, The judge in that case ruled that under EU law, to which both Spain and the Dutch entities were subject, no valid agreement to arbitrate existed. As a result, he said the US court lacked subject matter jurisdiction under the US Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And that's consistent, isn't it, Susie, with the Court of Justice of the European Union's 2021 ruling in Comstroy, which we've discussed in a previous podcast. It is, but it's the first time a US court has refused to enforce an intra-EU investment treaty award on such a basis. It also contradicts rulings by another DC judge the previous month, which found that EU law could not deprive the US court of jurisdiction to hear similar enforcement actions against Spain. Turning now to South America, And at the end of last year, the Secretary General of the Permanent Court of Arbitration and the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ecuador signed a host country agreement. Ah, so what does that mean in practice? Uh, Well, what it means is that PCA-administered proceedings can now be conducted in Ecuador on an ad hoc basis without the need for a permanent physical PCA presence there and under equivalent conditions to those guaranteed under the PCA's headquarters agreement with the Kingdom of Netherlands, including the same privileges and immunities that are granted to arbitrators, PCA staff and other participants in PCA-administered proceedings, such as counsel, agents and witnesses. So Ecuador certainly seems to be embracing arbitration. And if I recall correctly, in our first podcast, we discussed Ecuador rejoining the ICSID Convention in September 2021. Uh, We did, and uh, this is the culmination of various efforts made by Ecuador to position itself as a pro-arbitration, pro-investment dispute resolution hub in Latin America, and also by the PCA to continue enhancing its presence and accessibility in the region. And what other countries does the PCA have host country agreements with them? It has them with Argentina, Chile, uh, China, in relation to the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, Costa Rica, Djibouti, India, Portugal, Singapore, Uruguay and Vietnam, among others. And what these agreements do is allow parties in dispute who are located in or near the host country to take full advantage of the flexibility and efficiency of PCA-administered proceedings in the territory of the host country. Moving closer to home now to domestic matters in the UK, As we discussed last time, the Law Commission is carrying out a review of the English Arbitration Act 1996. It is, and the consultation period closed in December. However, in light of the responses received, which is very gratifying, the Law Commission decided to publish a second consultation paper concerning the proper law of an arbitration agreement. 
A number of respondents raised concerns about the UK Supreme Court decision last year in Enker against Chubb, which many felt set out a complex test to determine the proper law of an arbitration agreement and was thus likely to lead to further disputes. So how did respondents suggest the proper law of an arbitration agreement should be decided? Well, the majority of respondents were in favour of a rule to to the effect that the law of the arbitration agreement is the law of the seat, unless the parties expressly agree otherwise in the arbitration agreement itself, and the Law Commission has provisionally proposed that such a rule be introduced into the Arbitration Act. That second consultation closed in May, and no doubt we'll revisit the Arbitration Act in our next podcast. Absolutely. But turning our gaze now to Southeast Asia, on the 17th of January, the Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste became the 172nd country to accede to the 1958 United Nations Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards, obviously better known as the New York Convention. And it entered into force for Timor-Leste on the 17th of April 2023. As a result of its accession, Timor-Leste's courts will be required to give effect to arbitration agreements and to recognise and enforce awards made in other contracting states. Continuing our globetrotting, we now go from Southeast Asia to America and more on the 2022 decision of the US Supreme Court in ZF against LuxShare that we've discussed previously on this podcast. Listeners might recall that the US Supreme Court concluded that discovery assistance in the US under Section 1782 of the United States Code didn't extend to foreign private commercial arbitration or ad hoc investor state arbitration. The Supreme Court held that Section 1782 could only be invoked where the foreign tribunal was a governmental or intergovernmental adjudicative body. But... That left open the question of whether Section 1782 could be deployed in support of exit arbitrations. It did, but the Supreme Court didn't provide a specific test for lower courts to follow in such cases. I recall too that in our last last podcast, you referred to the first decision on the issue by the New York Eastern District Court, which ruled that an exit tribunal hearing the claim of a Chinese investor against Malta lacked governmental authority and therefore didn't qualify as a foreign or international tribunal under Section 1782 of the US Code. That's right. And in a more recent case, the case of Re-WeBuild SPA, which has been heard since, the Southern District Court of New York concluded that Section 1782 discovery assistance was not available to the claimants in an exit arbitration under the Bilateral Investment Treaty between Panama and Italy. So did the judge reach that conclusion on the same basis as the earlier case? Well, no. Uh, The court in the most recent decision compared the facts of the case to the facts in ZF Automotive, the earlier Supreme Court decision, and found that the ICSID tribunal was materially indistinguishable from the ad hoc tribunal in ZF Automotive. Deciding factors were that the ICSID tribunal was not a pre-existing panel, The BIT did not itself create the arbitration panel, it functioned independently from any government, and that the authority of the tribunal was derived from the party's consent and not from any government. So do these two decisions indicate the direction of travel on this issue? It might, although it's worth noting that both these decisions come from courts in the Second Circuit, which, in the earlier circuit split, 
before the Supreme Court decision in ZF against Luxshare was on the side of restricting access to 1782. Wow. So what's the future for use of Section 1782 in ICSID arbitrations? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Um, The investors in both cases have challenged the respective district court's decisions. And given Section 1782 can be a very powerful tool, parties in investor state arbitrations will undoubtedly continue to test the boundaries of the Supreme Court's decision until there's a definitive decision on the issue. Of course, we'll report on any developments in our next episode. Lovely, thank you. Um, Let's now talk about the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, or AFCFTA, which created the world's largest continental free trade area by number of countries, when trading under the deal officially commenced on 1 January 2021. The objective of AFCFTA is to boost intra-African trade and investment. On the last podcast, Susie, you discussed the status of the Protocol on Investment and the investor protection provisions based on the zero draft of the investment protocol published in November 2021. I did. And since then, on the 19th of February 2023, the African Union Assembly of Heads of State and Government adopted the investment protocol, which will enter into force 30 days after the deposit of the 22nd instrument of ratification. However, The investor state dispute resolution provisions have been left to a future agreement that will be negotiated over the next 12 months. Nonetheless, adoption of the protocol will give added momentum to Africa's drive to build an integrated continental market, foster structural transformation and build a competitive private sector. That's very interesting, Susie. Thank you. As regular listeners will know, Uncertrol Working Group 3 is considering reforms to ISDS. What news of that, Susie? Well, it certainly is. And the most advanced of the proposals concern the Code of Conduct. At its meeting in New York in March, the working group completed work on a draft Code of Conduct for arbitrators in investor state disputes. The working group had been working on a single draft Code of Conduct for adjudicators in ISDS cases, but has since then agreed on two separate codes, one for arbitrators and another for judges sitting on a permanent investment court, a reform still being considered by the working group. And when we looked at this previously, one of the main sticking points had been how to regulate double hatting, that is, arbitrators playing multiple roles in more than one arbitration as counsel, expert and arbitrator, either concurrently or for a period of time afterwards. That's right. Proposals had ranged from a ban on double hatting and a prohibition period of at least 10 years on the one hand to no limitation at all on the other. So what compromise was reached? Okay, so under the now agreed code, arbitrators are prohibited from acting as legal representative or expert witness in any ISDS case or related proceeding involving the same measure, that is any law, regulation, procedure, requirement, conduct or practice of a state that allegedly affects the investor's protected rights or involving the same or related parties for three years after serving as arbitrator. In cases involving the interpretation of the same provisions of the same investment treaty, the prohibition period on arbitrators acting in related cases is only one year. The shorter period of prohibition for the same treaty provision could be said, I think, to be an important win for investors. And by that, I mean multiple cases can arise under the same treaty provision. And in those circumstances, investors' freedom to choose their arbitrator and counsel will only be slightly restricted. 
you're absolutely right. And I should also add that the disputing parties can agree to opt out of these provisions. And do the same restrictions apply to judges on the Permanent Investment Court as and when that's established? In fact, no. The restrictions are more onerous. Judges on the Standing Court would be prohibited from acting in any capacity in any proceeding before the Standing Court, which was pending during his or her term of office, and cannot appear in other cases before the Standing Court for three years after the end of their term in office. The UN says the text of both codes will be presented to UNCITRAL at its annual meeting in Vienna in July, where they are expected to be adopted. Well, thank you for that. And with that, we conclude this episode of Arbitral Insights. I hope it's been a useful and practical review of recent and expected developments in investment arbitration. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you'll tune in to the next edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series, and especially the next ISDS Horizon Scanning podcast. To find out more about Reed Smith's ISDS capabilities in London, Paris, the US and elsewhere, do please visit reedsmith.com. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.